Welcome to Kidney Commute, brought to you by the National Kidney Foundation, driven by the interprofessional team with emphasis on the patient voice. In each episode, we will incorporate the perspectives of the different members of the kidney team as well as the patient. Join our huddle on all things kidney health and allow new perspectives to inspire collaboration in your practice. Eligible listeners can earn credit along the way. The Kidney Commute, a continuing education podcast planned by the team for the team. Hello, and welcome to The Kidney Commute, an NKF interprofessional podcast. My name is Dory Minch. I'm a social worker with Atrium Healthway, Forest Baptist in North Carolina, and I'll be the host of today's discussion. Today, we'll be discussing a topic that's important for all of our kidney patients. Living donation and transplant is a great way to address disparities in the limited access we have to kidneys. And here with us today, we have a robust panel with experience in being both living donors and providers to our patients. Hello, everyone. My name is Lance Mason, and I am a 2021 living kidney donor transplant recipient, and I have no financial relationships with ineligible companies. Um, I'm Alexander Dmutuk. I'm a nephrologist with some transplant nephrology training. I don't have any financial disclosures. Hi, my name is Annie Doyle. I'm a registered nurse and living donor coordinator at M Health Fairview University of Minnesota Medical Center, and I do not have any financial disclosures. My name is Jennifer Bruins. I am a social work case manager at Ascension Providence Hospital in Southfield. I have past experience working as both a transplant and kidney dialysis social worker for about 20 years. And I also was a kidney donor to my husband in 2004, and I have no financial disclosures. Hi, I am Vanita Kumar, a transplant nephrologist at University of Alabama in Birmingham, the same place as wonderful Lance Mason. And I'm also the medical director of the Incompatible Solid Organ Transplant Program here. And I have no uh, financial disclosures. And I'm Dory Minch, the host of today's episode, and I have no financial relationships with ineligible companies. So let's dive right in. Lance, let's start with you. Can you share a little bit about your experience on how to find a living donor? Yeah, so I took uh, what I would consider a more modern approach to it as far as posting all my information on social media. Um, I went ahead and typed up a long story and description on who I was, my process, you know, my connection with chronic kidney disease, when it started, how it started. And I shared it on all my social media platforms, um, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, Facebook, everything you could think of. And I think total, I had over 200,000 hits and shares and comments and DMs and everything from all of the posts. I mean, within that, I might I, I had over 15 people apply to be a living donor. And throughout that process, as you all know, you know, being approved as a living donor is very strenuous and involves a lot of testing and a lot of lab results and things like that. So we eventually got to narrow it down to, I think, about three people who were who fit the criteria. And ultimately, we were able to get one person to go through the entire process and eventually give me what I would consider a second chance at life. So, 200,000 hits. That is absolutely amazing. Alexandra, I know that you are a nephrologist as well as a living donor. Can you share a little bit about what led you to be a living donor, especially, you know, given that you work in the field, I know being a provider, it can, you know, have some, some context to it. Can you share a little bit about what that was like for you? 
Sure. Um, so I've been a nephrologist since about 2006 when I graduated, and I have seen a lot of patients on dialysis. Right now I'm a director for um, hemodialysis at Jesse Brown VA in Chicago, and I see dialysis patients all the time. I see how difficult their lives are. I see that they have to be there for, you know, four hours, three times a week. It's kind of like a part-time job. They are frequently very tired after dialysis. They can't do spontaneous travel. A lot of times when they go home, they just, you know, they all they can do is sleep because they're so um, fatigued. And I always felt so, so bad that they just can't have normal lives like we all do. They frequently feel isolated, like no one understands them. They are frequently very anxious because they don't know when their dialysis axis might go down and something might happen, prevent them from having their dialysis. So I began thinking about this about nine years ago, and there was one particular case that made me really seriously think about it. And it was a younger woman that I saw in clinic. She was about in her early 30s and just came to me for the first time from her OBGYN. She just underwent like an OBGYN workup because she was trying to get pregnant. She just got married and her uh, OBGYN drew some blood, and it turned out that her creatinine was high. She had known previous known kidney disease. When she first saw me, we thought, well, maybe it's something acute and maybe something we could treat. But unfortunately, on further investigation, it was found that it was chronic kidney disease and stage, and there was nothing to be done. The second um, time I saw her, I told her we should talk about transplant options for you because you're very young, you know, you have your whole life ahead of you, and we should talk about those options. And maybe you should talk to your family, your friends, and see if anyone would be coming forward to, to, to donate to you. And the next time I saw her, she was in tears, and she said no one is willing to donate. And I just felt so, so, so bad for her. My heart was breaking because I knew she was trying to have a baby and you know, I knew she was going to be in a, on dialysis in the next month or two. And I know how difficult it is to become pregnant on dialysis and carry to term almost impossible, like I've never seen it happen. So I knew her dreams would may never realize because I knew how long the Chicago waiting list and the transplant list would be, probably about seven years. So by the time she got on the list, she got a transplant, she could be in her late 30s, and she might never get pregnant. She might never realize her dream. So I just felt so bad, and that's when my first serious thought began, like I should maybe become a donor. But I wasn't sure if I could donate because I have a history of bladder malignancy when I was in my early 20s. So it took me a little bit while longer. Um, I asked the transplant team at my um, institution, Northwestern University, if I could become a donor, if I haven't had a recurrence, and they said, you probably can. So finally, this year, after COVID, it took a little bit longer because of that, and I needed some social support. And the workup revealed that I was a great donor. So that's why it took me a little bit longer, but it's been about nine years that I've been thinking about it, just because I wanted to help people. That is an amazing story. Thank you so much for you know, not only saving her life, but, but saving somebody else's by pulling, you know, her out of that yeah. on our wait list. That's, that's awesome. 
Yeah, and, and you know, also not only want to did I want to help one person, I also wanted to hopefully because I'm a physician and the nephrologist inspire other people to donate because they thought, well, you know, if I'm a nephrologist, I know all the risks that come with donation and the benefits because there are benefits. You feel really good about helping someone. You know, maybe other people will be more likely to come forward to donate. And then I also had another goal in mind because I see that some patients in um, both institutions that I work at um, are hesitant to go on the transplant list or get a transplant because they don't trust in the medical system or they don't trust their doctors. And I thought if they see their doctor doing this and believing in transplant and knowing that patients are living healthier and longer lives with the transplant, they might be more willing to undergo a transplant workup and more accepting of a transplant. So those were my my goals and you know my wishes for the, the my donation. That is so powerful. Annie, can you share with us the process of being worked up as a living donor? I'd be happy to. So living donation is a really precious resource and therefore all centers that evaluate living donors are very careful and thoughtful and follow all the necessary regulations. So it's a tiered process. It moves at the donor's pace. So that's another um, important thing to note that donors can move as quickly or take as much time as they need throughout the process. It's um, an equal vetting process in the sense that we are looking at the donor and evaluating their medical and psychosocial history to see if they're suited to do this. But donors are also vetting the transplant center. They're making sure they understand all the risks and benefits of donation, the alternatives, and if this is the center where they would choose to donate their gift. Most centers start with an intake process that's often an online survey or a call with a healthcare professional to review their medical history. Then there is an ILDA call or independent living donor advocate. That person serves as an advocate for the donor to protect their their rights uh, throughout the process. They're independent from the transplant team. After that call, uh, it might vary with from center to center, but there's usually another screening process with a transplant coordinator or perhaps some basic testing, and that might be height, weight, blood pressure, some basic labs, blood type, tissue typing. It really varies um, between centers. When the donor is ready for the in-person evaluation, that's usually a one or two day process, depending on the center. There is blood testing, urine testing, kidney function testing, imaging, including EKG, chest X-ray, abdominal CT, provider visits with the transplant team, including physicians. That might be a nephrologist and a surgeon, the social worker, the donor advocate, a dietitian a transplant coordinator, and possibly a psychologist, pharmacist, and financial coordinator. The purpose of all these visits are to assess the medical and psychosocial candidacy of the donor and provide education about the evaluation process, the living donor nephrectomy surgery itself, and the risks both short-term and long-term with kidney donation. As Alexandra mentioned, uh, there are benefits of feeling good about uh, giving the gift of life. However, there are no medical benefits with kidney donation, and therefore it's really important that donors understand the short-term and long-term risks of donation. 
We also review the alternatives to living donor transplant, such as deceased donor transplant, dialysis, and also perhaps helping that recipient find a living donor other than yourself. The goal, of course, uh, with any team or any transplant center is to support the potential donor in their informed decision-making. Typically, the living donor team meets shortly after the donor's evaluation and reviews the donor's candidacy in a multidisciplinary committee. Donors are often approved at this point, declined, or require more testing to see if they want to proceed in the kidney donor evaluation process. Thank you, Annie. Can you share a little bit about what information is shared with the recipient? Absolutely. So as I mentioned, this is uh, living donation is a really precious resource and therefore the donors have their own living donor team, which is separate from the recipient team. And this is of course, so that we can support the living donors best interests. And therefore we don't share information with the recipient about their donors progress throughout the donor evaluation. Certainly donors can tell recipients about their progress and oftentimes donors and recipients have close relationships. They might even live in the same household and they're sharing information freely, but certainly we support donors keeping things confidential until they're approved and ready to take the next steps with donation. Thank you, Annie. And Vanita, what medical concerns would preclude a person from donating? Thank you for asking the question, Dory. If a person comes forward wanting to donate, um, the first thing I'd like for our audience to hear is that if they want to donate, the evaluating team in the center wants to get behind that decision to want to donate and the main principle that guides us in helping that person is to say, if you voluntarily give up one kidney, will your life with the remaining one kidney be just about as unaffected as if you had two kidneys? And pretty much our entire evaluation process centers around the fact that you can go through life as well with one kidney as two kidney as best as we can tell today. So having said that, the, first, the next thing I'd like for our audience to sort of hear is that we, we should talk about what the concerns are that would preclude a person to donate, but allowing a evaluating donor center to make that decision and not to take it upon yourself as a recipient or a dialysis team or a community member to do that, because there are nuances to all of this. What I mean by that is there are a few things that are what we call absolute contraindications. You should not be a donor, absolute contraindications. And as Annie just pointed out, the evaluation process is very tiered, very regulated, happens at the donor space. Um, but with absolute contraindications, for instance, if you are, say, less than 18 years of age and mentally incapable of making an informed decision, or if you are having an active malignancy that you're undergoing treatment, or if you are having uncontrolled diagnosable psychiatric condition or uncontrolled hypertension, those are some sort of what we call absolute contraindications where you need your own two kidneys and you should not be a 
donor uh, because your life with one kidney would mean your own deterioration of health in the long term. Now, where, where there's a lot of area, uh, which is why we want donors to come to evaluating centers who have experienced any process to do this are what we call relative contraindications. So let me give you an example of that. We, you know, people will hear if you have high blood pressure, you cannot be a donor. Well, that is true, except if you are an older donor with hypertension, there's data now, if you're say above age 50 and you have well-controlled hypertension, you could potentially be a donor. If you were younger and hypertensive, you couldn't be a donor. Kidney stones, a relative contraindication, relative meaning, you know, if you have kidney stones, it makes us pause, pause and could be pause and don't proceed or pause and you could proceed if we do additional testing. What I mean by that is if you have today stones, bilateral stones, meaning stones in both kidneys, that rules you out. But if you have had a history of a kidney stone or if you have a current stone with appropriate testing to make sure that you don't have a medical condition that's predisposing you to ongoing stone formation, and especially if you're older and your life years at risk are not as many, then that now becomes somebody that could go on to donate. So there's all this intermediate criteria, if you will, and that is sort of dependent not only on the individual donor or the individual center, but also the nuance of specifics that are applicable to that particular candidate that comes forward. In other words, context matters. And this is why um, there is confusion sometimes that's surrounding this field because donors or recipients will hear, well, that center allowed this person to donate. But when I went to this center, they said no. And it's, it's not only context, but it's also what individual centers are comfortable in allowing their donors to proceed or not. The word allowing sounds really harsh. What I mean by that is that we know a lot about kidney donation. We know that kidney donation, for the most part, is extremely safe. But we also know that as our as our population is aging, as medical conditions are accumulating, as, for instance, obesity increases in our population, I am not the same weight I used to be in high school. So if I wanted to be a donor today versus if I wanted to be a donor in high school, that's two very different narratives. If somebody who has, a, for instance, a BMI of 35 comes forward to want to be a donor, most centers would say lose weight and then come back and then we'll see and we'll give you a certain target weight. There are some centers that will say, even if you lose weight, we know most donors gain weight back later. So today, if you are this weight and you don't have any medical conditions like diabetes, hypertension, pre-diabetes, pre-hypertension, um, any, and you have adequate kidney function and you're otherwise an acceptable donor, go on to donate, but then we want you to be enrolled in a weight loss program and take care of yourself long-term. So these are sort of the individual practice variations. Um, But I hope that sort of answers your question about what are some of the medical concerns that would preclude a person from donating. Absolutely. And I think what is so important is that distinction between relative and absolute contraindications. 
I often tell people, let the transplant center determine whether your intended donor is a candidate and not you, because that that donor can share their evaluation experience with others and, and help pro promote other people to come and be evaluated. So yes, thank you very much. A donor that's not able to move forward in the donation process is still a donor that can be an advocate to that recipient and sharing their story and also sharing that living donation is indeed a tiered safe process, as Annie pointed out, where the first and foremost thing is donor safety. And they can then be wonderful advocates for this process. Yeah, thank you, Dory, for pointing that out. Jennifer, what psychosocial concerns might a person have when they are in evaluation to be a potential donor? One of the first things we always ask patients or do potential donors is, you know, what made you come to this decision? I mean, obviously, even when you're completely sure of your decision to donate, obviously people will have some concerns, anxiety, that sort of thing. What we're really looking for are major sort of indecision, concern, you know, uh, we want to make sure someone is coming in with a, um, that this is something they really want to do, that there's no, there's no, um, conf conflicting feelings. Um, and when I used to do living donor evaluations, I would, you know, we'd often talk about some of the conflicts because people that want to donate really want to help the person, but they may have concerns. We want to make sure the person has adequate support for the surgery. So do you have family, friends that are supportive of your decision? people in your life that will be able to help take care of you when you are recovering from the surgery. We want to make sure that there are no obvious financial concerns that, you know, you're able to take time off work. And if you do need to, to take vacation time or uh, get some short-term disability, we help you with that process. Always lifestyle concerns. We want to make sure that the potential donor is leading a healthy lifestyle you know, not engaging in any substance abuse, not engaging in any real risky behavior that might put their, their health or their remaining kidney in danger. We just want to make sure that there's no obvious, um, and any mental illness, any mental serious mental health issues. You know, again, people will come in with a little bit, maybe, um, anxiety, maybe a little bit of fear, that sort of thing. Mild amount of that is, is normal part of the process, but if you're having any significant depression, anxiety, any other mental health concerns, you want to make sure that those are, are treated and dealt with prior to any decision to proceed with donation. Thank you for that. There is a lot to consider. And, you know, like you said, people may come in with some anxiety and fear, but that's actually probably pretty healthy. If, if someone walked in you know, not having any concerns about being a potential donor, I may actually have more concerns about yes. the understanding of the seriousness. I think one of the other things we look for is intention too. You know, I, I remember one case I had where a, a potential donor, they were dealing with a lot of past trauma and donation. They were using donation as a way to heal that, which to an extent that may be, you know, using your past experience to inform your decisions is, is okay. But if that, that decision is coming out of an area where there might be some untreated trauma, maybe some PTSD, that sort of thing, we want to make sure those issues are dealt with. Now, that doesn't preclude that person from donating, but you know, if there are some serious emotional mental health concerns, we might recommend the donor seek counseling before they proceed with donation. 
So we do want to make sure that if there's any significant concerns that we have those addressed before we proceed with donation. Yes. Thank you. Annie, what happens if a donor changes their mind at the last minute or at any time during the evaluation process? Sure. So that's a really important question. And that is something that is stressed throughout the donor evaluation process. Donors should never feel pressured or induced or coerced into donation. They can decline at any time. And that includes the day of surgery. Now that doesn't happen often. And that's because donors are really well educated and they're really well supported and they're checked in throughout this process. However, we do assess that um, throughout the process. And again, of course, the day of surgery. And if the donor isn't ready or prepared, certainly the last thing we would want is for them to proceed with donation that day. So the team would pause and you know, regroup when the donor was ready or that donor would just not donate and we would make a new plan. So back to you, Alexandra, what options are available for donation and, and how are we changing that conversation? I know a lot of people historically think it's you know, I have to give this to this person I know, um, but I know that there's been a lot of changes in the direct donation, the swaps. Can you talk a little bit about what that looks like now and how we are changing those conversations? Sure. So there is, it depends on whether you are what's called a direct, like a direct donor or non-directed donor. So directed donor is a donor that just gives to a specific person that they pick. And the, and the non-director donor is a, basically like an altruistic donor. So they just want to give to anyone. So the director donation can proceed to, the donor can donate to a specific person that they know, or they can donate to still a specific person, but it can be through like a paired kidney exchange where that donor has a recipient, but they don't match each other. But then there's another pair that don't match each other either, but your um, recipient matches the other person's donor and vice versa, and you can swap the kidneys. And those swaps can occur like more than one, so it can be like a chain of swaps if the timing is right. So that's for the direct donation. For non-director donors like me, which are also called altruistic kidney donors. You can also donate a kidney to a paired kidney exchange. You can donate a kidney to somebody you don't know. You can just say to your transplant center, just give my kidney to anybody who needs it. That's number one. Number two option, you can say, I want to give, but I want to impact more than one life. So I would like to for this to be a paired kidney exchange situation. So again, you donate to somebody you don't know, but that person has a donor as well, and that donor donates to another person. This is what happened in my case. And then this can also happen as a chain. You donate to somebody you don't know, and then this person has a donor, and they donate to another person, and that person has a donor, and they donate to another person, and it creates a chain that could be even never-ending. It can just go on and on and on. And also what what can happen is if you're a non-directed donor or a directed donor, if you can donate now, but your recipient is not ready, you can um, get a voucher for a recipient to get a kidney later whenever they're ready. So you can donate now and then your family members, if you're a non-directed donor or a directed donor, 
can get a voucher for a kidney, a living kidney uh, donation later on when they're ready. And the transplant center will find them a living donor later on. So this changes everything because the donors can donate whenever they it is convenient for them. They no longer have to happen on the same day. The donation and the, um, the two transplants no longer have to happen on the same day. So people can donate on their own time. And the recipient transplant can happen on another day. So it's very convenient. And the paired kidney exchange programs have just made um, the process a lot more efficient. And more transplants can happen as a result of this. So it's just, it's just amazing what happened because of, um, of all these opportunities. And I love all of those opportunities. Um, I find it, especially the advanced donation opportunity for some of my people who their only caregiver to support them afterwards is the person that can donate to them. And so they can yeah. donate in advance and then the, the recipient can take care of the, the donor, which is a nice opportunity. Yes. That, and then, you know, they can get their kidney later or even opportunities to be um, worked up remotely. So I, I even tell people, you know, yeah. don't even let distance be a barrier because you can get connected with the hospital and you can get worked up in California and your person's over here in North Carolina and, and you don't yes. even need to come over for that. So, you know. Yes, that is true. Actually, I was a donor for, I don't know, until later. My recipient was in Virginia and I'm in Chicago. So, um, and then the donor from um, the patient in Virginia donated to a patient in Chicago. So, yeah, the kidneys were flown over. <laughs> you know, and you don't have to look like your donor. You have to be, or you don't have to look like your recipient. Nope. You don't have to be the age of your recipient. Nope. You don't have to. No. So all, no. It doesn't matter, right? You don't have to have the same blood type. You don't have to be family member, it's all misconceptions that a lot of people have. Yeah. I tell people you need someone who's willing to be worked up on your behalf to, to donate yes. and not to donate a kidney to you. That's, that's so exciting. Yeah. Jen, what post-donation emotional consequences should, should donors and recipients and teams be aware of? I think one of the biggest things, and I always would tell patients or potential donors, is once you donate that kidney, it's not your kidney anymore. And I think especially if you have a relationship with the recipient, sometimes there can be concerns about how that person is going to treat the, your donation. Now, of course, we want the best for all recipients and donors, but I think because you donated doesn't mean you get to control the behavior of the recipient. And I think that was, it's one of the hardest things for donors to maybe accept is that once you've released that donation, it is no longer yours to have a say over. Some people can experience, well, first of all, there's the, the emotions that follow any kind of surgery. So um, some of that can be, you know, biochemical. Some people don't react well to anesthesia. They might have some depression, some fatigue. So those are things to be aware of. There can be a little bit of like a sort of deflation of emotion. I think there's this big lead up to the, the donation. You're anxious, you're excited, you're concerned. You have the surgery and then it's done. And it can be this big buildup for months leading up to the surgery. And then when it's over, it's over. And so I think being prepared for that, maybe that there's a little bit of like a, a little bit of a letdown feeling, so to say. I mean, even though you've done this great thing, it can also be like, wow, that that's it. 
The other thing too, I think is we take a healthy person and we put them through a surgery they don't need just for completely altruistic reasons. And then you're left not feeling as great. You'll recover, but you know, there can be stress that comes with the recovery process. You, you know, the obvious physical of, of pain and fatigue and that sort of thing, but also just, you know, the downtime that's required after donation, especially if you're a very active person dealing with, you know, two to four weeks of not being able to do the regular activity you're used to doing the concerns. If you are not working um, and maybe the financial issues with that, and then making sure you have recovery time, you know, donors with maybe young children, you want to make sure there's someone there to take care of you. I think the other concern is, is, is that after a donate, a donor donates, a lot of the focus can then go on the recipient and their recovery. And sometimes the donor can get forgotten. And so making sure that you, again, that don't, I think the biggest thing that the biggest gift donors can give themselves is making sure they have an adequate support system. And having people that can not only take care of them physically, but also attend to their emotional needs. I think it's also important for professionals that work in the field to make sure that we keep a focus on the donor and make sure that we're checking in with them to make sure they're, they're coping okay when they come in for their follow-up visits, really making sure you spend some time with the donor to help them process any kinds of feelings of grief or loss they may be feeling after the donation. Um, and make sure their needs are being met as well. Thank you for touching on all of those points. Um, Lance, having had been the recipient of a living donor, are there any medical or emotional considerations that have been difficult or maybe less difficult than you thought managing your care post? Yeah, so I would say emotionally in the beginning, there was a few difficult times, a few difficult days between my donor and I. I would say after the transplant, of course, you know, for me, it was super exciting. I mean, you know, medically it was a little bit, you know, there it took time to recover, but emotionally it was, you know, super exciting for me just to have this again, second chance at life. But for my donor, I think it still was um, a scary time for her. She, you know, reached out to me, if not once a day, maybe multiple times a day, just to kind of check on me, make sure I was doing okay, trying to see how I was doing. And I would reach out to her, check on her, see how she was doing. Um, and I think, you know, initially that put some pressure on, on, on myself, you know, I put pressure on myself, just trying to make sure that, you know, I was there for her and trying to come for her. But at the same time, you know, I, I, I had just went through a surgery and I needed people to, you know, be there for me and come for me and all of those things as well. So I would say, you know, over the first few weeks, I had to do some, I would almost call it self-identification of realizing that, you know, this is now my kidney, right? Because it, in, in the beginning, I was looking at it as if, you know, this is her kidney and she's giving me this chance at life and I have to make sure I do everything that I can to take care of it and, and I have to do it in honor of her, which is true. Every part of that is true, but I also have to look at it on the flip side. Like, this is my kidney, now this is my life and I have to take care of myself as well. So it's putting that same effort and best foot forward on, on my donor's behalf and on my behalf as well. And as far as medically, I would say the post-donation process, it took a high level of organization and a high level of patience as far as really taking the time to let my body heal and not trying to rush back into the world, especially you know post-COVID, 
trying to kind of get back and do things that I had been missing out and, and I, and go back to restaurants that I hadn't been able to eat at. And, you know, just being able to kind of reintroduce myself into life, a normal life without dialysis and without, you know, being in, um, in stage renal disease. But the most important thing that I know my nephrologist and Dr. Kumar and Dr. Zarju and everybody at UAB that they spoke of was being sure that I took my medicine. I never, ever, ever, still to this day, I have not missed a dose. And I plan for the rest of my life on never missing a dose <laughs> of any of my anti-rejection medicine, any of my blood pressure medicine, anything like that. Because at the end of the day, if I don't do what I have to do to maintain my kidney emphasis, you know, I don't, if I don't do what I have to do to maintain my kidney on the inside, her donation will ultimately not be as effective as it can be and should be. And my life will not be as healthy and as exciting and as awesome as I think it can be and should be. So um, medically, I would say that the process overall is not hard, especially compared to going through dialysis and going through all of the workup and lab works and, and the feeling and, and being drained and having such a strict diet while going through kidney disease. But I would just say it's super important that you maintain organized uh, organization and that you just kind of stay on top of it and don't let the excitement and don't let the fun of it all, you know, get to you that you forget the importance of maintaining a healthy um, lifestyle for sure. That is so powerful. And I love, you know, what you say, and especially mirroring what Jen was saying about it, it is your kidney and it is your responsibility. And although you want to honor your donor, you can't live for your donor and, and they don't want you to, they want you to live for yourself you know, and, and hopefully in the evaluation process, all of that's teased out. And, and your point about the immunosuppression, some people think that because it's a living donor that you won't need to take medicine, but, but because it's not your own kidney, you absolutely always will need to take that immunosuppression. Your body's never going to, you know, think that it's its own. And so thank you for bringing those really strong points to a head. So, you know, I want to thank our panelists and just provide a few takeaways really briefly you know, often providers may feel that there's a conflict of interest in donating to a directed donor patient or, or to be an altruistic donor. And there absolutely is not, as you know, we can see on our panel here of, of a physician who donated, you know, to a patient and Jen donating to her husband, there is no conflict of interest there. You know, we work in the field. It doesn't mean we can't be a part of the field and we should all be champions like our panelists are today. When you're considering whether or not you or one of your, your patient's intended donors is a candidate, let the transplant center make that decision. Even if someone isn't a candidate, they can share their experience with others and may put them at ease to donate. And you know, finally, when talking to your patients, remind them that a donor doesn't need to look like them. They don't need to have the same blood type. They don't need to be the same race, gender, or even have the same political views. They don't even need to agree with the, the recipient. Um, they just need to be willing to be evaluated on uh, the recipient's behalf and, and be willing to engage in that process and open and honest in what they need. So again, I want to thank you uh, to all of our panel members for their contributions to this important discussion. And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us on this ride of the Kidney Commute. Remember, eligible audiences can earn CE credit for listening to this episode by clicking the link in the episode description. If you have any comments or suggestions for future episodes, please email the team at nkfpodcast.kidney.org. Stay tuned for future huddles. And in the meantime, continue to let new perspectives inspire your practice. Thanks all for being here today.